I have uh, one um, announcement I'd like to add that's in your program, and that is, uh, men, I'm looking for a few good men to join me at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings for prayer, and um, we took a little break from November, and we started back up in February, and the men's group is back uh, praying on uh, Wednesdays at 6.30, so guys, if uh, you can make that, I would invite you to join me. We had three guys out on, on Wednesday, and I think we can, this is at the offices at the bridge, I think we can probably handle a few more than three, so um, please consider if God's uh, men pray for the church, it can be a powerful uh, work uh, if we can raise men up to pray. Bridge kids, thank you for joining us uh, for worship, you're dismissed, and uh, head out with your teachers. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on uh, 10 traits of a fully devoted follower of Christ. 10 traits. Can you say that real fast? Like one word. 10 traits, okay? We have um, stated that our mission at the bridge here is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And the biblical basis for our mission is found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and certainly I will be with you to the end of the age. Um, the key concept as we make disciples uh, is that we are to teach everyone to uh, obey the, 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 everything that Jesus commanded. That's why we call it full devotion to Christ. Um, so one of the, this assumes that we are pursuing full devotion to Christ. And how can we help anybody pursue full devotion to Christ if we are not pursuing Full devotion to Christ. Our series, 10 Traits, um, answers the question, if we're successful in our mission, and we do help people connect with God, and we do help them develop into fully devoted followers of Christ, what's that going to look like? What would it look like as one is becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ? So we've been focusing on 10 character traits. There are probably more. We're just focusing on 10, and they're not like the only way to describe a, somebody who is fully committed to Christ. Uh, so far, let's just review. Um, here's what we've said so far. A fully devoted follower of Christ has a growing knowledge of the Bible and is to learning to apply it daily. Now, we're not saying that, you know, you have to be a biblical scholar. We're saying... You have a growing knowledge. And so are you growing in your knowledge of the Bible? And are you learning to apply it daily? It can be slow growth, fast growth, but are you growing? Next one. Fully devoted follower of Christ practices regular spiritual disciplines. That may be kind of a new concept. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Timothy is supposed to train himself. There's a place where other people train him and help. The Apostle Paul helped him. 
Uh, Timothy was the leader of the church, but there were things that Timothy was supposed to do. Timothy was to practice spiritual disciplines, you know, um, things like studying the Bible, praying together, um, memorizing scripture, sometimes fasting. There, there are practices, spiritual practices that can help us grow. And the things that we are, we practice, we, just like a musician practices, just like an athlete practices. They train, they train, they train. There are things that we can do that will help us grow. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of that. Also, a fully devoted follower of Christ seeks to, daily to deny self and submit to the Lordship of Christ. Um, Jesus is Savior and He is Lord. And the implication is, what does it mean if he's Lord of my life? And it's about a, a, a fully devoted follower of Christ learns to submit to the Lordship of Christ because that's what we would do if we were following the concept of Lordship. And um, so that's the four we've covered in the first uh, two weeks, and this is week number three, part three. So we're going to take on three, uh, two traits today. And the first one is this. A fully devoted follower of Christ cares about lost people and intentionally builds relationships to share the good news. A fully devoted follower of Christ cares, cares about lost people and intentionally builds relationships to share the good news. So let's break this down. What does it mean by this concept of lost people? The first thing I want to say is this is not a derogatory term in the scriptures. Now, sometimes Christians use it in a derogatory way as if somehow Christians are better than lost people. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's misunderstanding. But let's talk about it. What is it? First of all, it's someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. We could call that person a seeker, someone who doesn't know, someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus yet. That certainly was me for the first 25 years of my life. Um, so you could say I was a lost person. Um, someone who has not yet placed their, his or her faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Same idea. Someone who has not yet placed their faith, his or her faith. Also, it's someone who might be considered an unbeliever. We're using terms that describe this concept of a, a lost person. Um, someone who might be considered an unbeliever. Someone who is not believing in the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. That he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sin. Now, sometimes that's because they've just plain never heard about it before. And sometimes it's... Um, because they don't understand it because of the people who shared it with them and it doesn't, the message doesn't seem clear or it hasn't been explained accurately. Um, sometimes they, it's a person who just plain chooses, I don't like this. And, and that's just an unbeliever. Another concept is it might be someone who is far from God uh, as opposed to somebody who is close to God, it may be reflected in their lifestyle or it may be reflected in their attitude. Another uh, concept is, is it's someone who is not born again. Someone who is not born again. Jesus um, 
used this term. He said, you must be born again. And it's a reference to uh, the concept that Jesus used. There's two, two births, he said. One is a physical birth, a natural birth. But he said, you, if you're going to go to heaven, you need to have a second birth. It's a spiritual birth. And he said, you must be born again. You must be born of God. You must have, to get connected with God, you need to have this relationship of being born again. The interesting thing is, this is a discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus, a highly religious person. Nicodemus was a good man. He was a highly religious man. He was devoted to doing right, but guess what? He was lost. He did not have that relationship with God yet. And he would become a follower of Christ after meeting with Jesus. Um, so, in the Bible, and you're going to see this as we develop this, this concept is not derogatory. It just describes somebody who is not yet. By the way, all people are created in the image of God. Isn't that right? All people created in the image of God. And uh, so this concept is that some people have a relationship with God through Christ, and some people don't yet have a relationship with God. Uh, next, God the Son cares about lost people. God the Son cares about lost people. And this is uh, illustrated very clearly in Jesus' life, and we see this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It's a pretty well-known concept. This is when Jesus meets Matthew as Jesus went from there, he, by the way, he's up northern Israel. He's in, he's in the city of Capernaum. And uh, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth because Ma Matthew was a tax collector. And uh, tax collectors, as you probably know, were not very popular in Jesus' day. A tax collector um, worked for the Romans Matthew was a Jewish man in a Jewish city collecting taxes for the Romans. The Romans required certain taxes to be paid, and then they hired people in the nations, like Matthew in Israel, to um, have taxes paid from the Jewish people. And to do that, they could charge whatever they could get away with, and that was their wage. Whatever they could get away with above what the Romans required. And usually these men lived quite well, became wealthy, and uh, they were hated by the Jewish people. Um, so Jesus comes to Matthew, a tax collector, and he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Invitation to Matthew, the tax collector. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Let's uh, stay back. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. That's nice. Matthew threw a party and invited Jesus. And Matthew invited all of his friends. Why? I think he wanted them to know about Jesus. But this is, uh, Jesus is really breaking down the social barriers here when he goes to Matthew's house because Eating a meal together was a very socially intimate and significant occasion. That Jesus, a rabbi, would go to Matthew's house. He is really stepping out of bounds here, at least according to the social customs of his day. 
And not only was Matthew there, and not only was this Matthew's house, it was many tax collectors and sinners. Um, as he went from there, he saw a man. Let's go on to the next one. Next slide. When the Pharisees saw this, those are the religious leaders of Israel, they asked his disciples, why does your, teachers, your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's the matter with this guy? Nobody, everybody knows you can't do this. This is, this is way out of bounds socially. This, and this was proof to the leaders that Jesus wasn't a man worth following. He couldn't be an important person from God if he's eating dinner with these folks. On hearing this, now we have to think about this. Jesus is on the inside of the house at Matthew's place. The disciples are on the outside, and so are the religious leaders. The Pharisees are out there with the disciples. And the door is likely open, as it would be the custom. And Jesus overhears, either overhears it, or he just understands what they're saying by his own perception. And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, that's really practical, isn't it? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, Jesus is using a bit of irony here as he, um, as he speaks of um, why he's here. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. So as the uh, Pharisees are listening, if they're healthy, if they're spiritually healthy, if they've got it all together, then they don't need Jesus. Because Jesus came to people who need him the concept of spiritually sick, um, the concept that they don't have it all together and they do need God and they do need a relationship with God and that's why Jesus has come. And uh, since the religious leaders don't, don't need Jesus, he says, go learn what this means. So he gives them a, 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 an assignment. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he gave them a list of priorities right there. I desire mercy, not sacrifice it. God did desire sacrifice. He gave those instructions in the Old Testament. There are even sacrifices in the New Testament that we have. Fortunately, they're not animal sacrifices. God just wants us. Um, I desire mercy. Jesus was showing mercy to Matthew and Matthew's friends because Jesus cared about Matthew and Matthew's friends. And he didn't care about their past. And that's what the religious leaders needed to learn. Jesus, God desires compassion. He desires mercy toward people. Not just religious duties like having sacrifices. Mercy has priority over the religious duties. Jesus uh, cares about lost people. Another key passage, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 to 38. This is a passage that Ryan Koppel spoke on last month, and I'm not going to re-preach it, but I just want to make a point. Uh, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That's, that, uh, that's the key there. He had compassion. When, when Jesus uh, took it all in, this large group, multiple, uh, multitudes, uh, sometimes that was in the thousands. Jesus just stopped, and, and he looked at the whole group, and his heart was broken. That's what Ryan was teaching us. It's blagna. He, his bowels were moved with compassion. That's his, his guts were moved. And uh, because the people 
needed a shepherd. They needed a leader in their life. They were drifting, and they didn't know where they were headed, and they needed a relationship with God. And that's what Jesus was concerned about. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. Because Jesus is looking for workers to join him. Remember, God is uh, searching for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, God is raising up a worshiping community. That's what we talked about last week. And Jesus is looking for people to join him. Uh, workers who are willing to be involved in the field of evangelism. Another key passage is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. If you know the story, he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. I'm just trying to see who knows the story. And guess what? The man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. So we already know about tax collectors, and uh, Zacchaeus is an overseer of tax. He supervises a group of tax collectors. So he's into a pretty cool lifestyle. He's wealthy, uh, and he wanted to see Jesus. Now, we don't know a lot about the background here, but apparently he had quite a bit of information about Jesus, and he was very interested in Jesus, and he couldn't see Jesus because he was so short. Jesus wouldn't have seen him if he had in the crowd because he was so short. And so he climbs up into a tree, and um, verse next slide, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Zacchaeus was looking for this. He, he was glad that Jesus noticed him. And to think that Jesus would come into his house, that is awesome. He didn't expect that. And so Zacchaeus is a seeker. He doesn't have a relationship with God, and he's looking for who, to find out about who this Jesus is. Verse 7 all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. He became, Jesus became the brunt of gossip. There he is. He's hanging out with the wrong people again. He's never going to make it as the Messiah. Uh, next slide, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, something happened to Zacchaeus in this house. We don't have the whole story. We don't have all of the dialogue, but we do have that something happened to Zacchaeus. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's all we have is that there's been a response on Zacchaeus's part. Zacchaeus has become a follower of Jesus. And it's interesting that this... Zacchaeus is a wealthy man. What's his life about? It's about money and more money and more money. And right away, it cuts right to the chase of his life, probably into two big areas, greed and covetousness. And Zacchaeus wants to be a new man. And right away, he's willing to give up. He's not paying for his relationship with God. He's just willing to be humble and to change his attitude about money. Jesus said to him, and here's the, the conclusion to this, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus said it was today. 
Jesus said, Zacchaeus has come to salvation today because this man, too, is the son of Abraham, not, meaning not only that he's the, physically a descendant of Abraham, but he's become a son of Abraham by faith. And then verse 10, this is why Jesus came. For the Son of Man, that's a term he used for himself, came to seek and to save the lost. There's nothing derogatory about that. It's why Jesus came. He cared so much that he came to seek, to give his energy and to give his life, to bring people into a relationship with him. Lost people matter to God, and therefore they should matter to us. Now, to be lost is to be disconnected from God. All people were created in the image of God, but we learn from scriptures that we fail. And all of us, by nature, are sinners. That's what Romans 3.23 tells us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person comes into this world really lost, disconnected from God. And there needs to be a change take place. So uh, all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us there are consequences for sin and it's death. That's not a physical death. That's a spiritual death. That's uh, eternal separation from God. The book of Revelation calls it the second death. Jesus called it hell, eternal consequences. For the wages of sin is death, but there's good news. But the free gift of God, Romans 6, 23 goes on to say, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, the free gift of God. Now, Jesus cared about lost people. God the Father also cares about lost people. And uh, we're going to look at another key passage, Luke chapter 15. This is a a passage that John Peters talked about last week. I'm not going to re-preach his two sermons. I just want to show you one thing right here. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, tax collectors and sinners, now we've heard about them already, haven't we? They were like the lowest social group in all of Israel. The least valued. The religious community really disdained this group of people. They just lumped them all together. Bad people. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. They were attracted to Jesus, and he was comfortable being with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That just seemed to be Jesus' pattern. And they don't get it, they don't understand it, and they don't like it. So Jesus now is going to go on to tell three parables. Uh, The first one is the parable of lost sheep. That's in verses 3 through 7 in chapter 15. I'm just going to highlight this real quick. The first parable is about this. A man had 100 sheep. One got lost. And he leaves all of the 99 behind, and he goes and pursues, trying to find one lost sheep. And guess what? He finds it, and that's good news. That's exciting. And he calls his friends and says, let's have a party. And the point of this little parable is Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God cares so much about a person. When they come to faith, he throws a party in heaven. What do you think about that? There's a celebration. Okay, there's a second parable here. Let's keep going. 
This is the parable of the lost coin. It's about a woman. She had 10 silver coins. That would be a, having hard cash was a big deal that she had had silver coins. If you use a tenth of those, that'd be like a big cash uh, amount in, in her day. And so uh, she has 10 silver. She accidentally loses one. And so she tears the house apart to find it. And guess what? Good news. She finds it and she texts all of her friends and says, come on over. Let's have a girl's night out. And they, they celebrate. In Luke 15, verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is a party in heaven when one person comes to faith. Think about this. When you placed your faith in Jesus, whether you were four years old or 40 years old, Whatever it was, there was a party for you because there's a celebration in heaven when one person comes to faith in Jesus. That's two parables. Now there's a third parable. This is the parable of the prodigal son in verses 11 through 32. It's about a lost son. A man has two sons. The youngest son came to dad and said, Dad, I want all of my inheritance that's due me, and I want it now. Give me the cash. So he takes the money, and he goes out, and he squanders it, and he's foolish, and uh, he parties, and, and uh, he loses all the money, and he's broke, and he's humiliated, and he's humbled, and he has dishonored his father, and he realizes, I got to go back. I got to go back and apologize to dad. I shouldn't have done this. My dad will take me back. And so he goes back, and his dad sees him from far off, and he runs toward his son. And um, he's so excited to see his son. Luke 15, 22. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This is a guy who just lost all the money, dad's money. Went out, and dad, dad could have said, I told you so. You were so stupid. You deserve this. But no, he throws a party. Okay, well, there were two sons, right? There was an older son, and guess what? He's the good guy, and he stayed home, and he worked for dad, and he worked hard, and he kept his nose to the grind. But when the young son, younger brother comes back, he's kind of disappointing. And the dad speaks to him in Luke 15, 32. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He, is, he was lost and now has found. That parable is teaching us something about God. It's about how God views people. Even people who squander their lives and make foolish choices. Even people who dishonor the Father. The man in the story represents God the Father. And the Young son who squandered everything represents the tax collectors and sinners in verses 1 and 2. And the older brother represents those religious leaders, the Pharisees, who um, they were good. They were religious. They kept their nose to the plow, but they've developed this high pride, and they really miss what God is all about. And they become just this re re religious robots. And the father cares about 
people. He cares about lost people. John 3.16 reminds us of this. For God so loved the world. This is the most obvious one, but we overlook it all the time. For God so loved the world. He so loved people. Individual people. You and me. He loves all people. He loved us, loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever, anybody, no one is beyond this. Whoever believes shall not perish. That's that eternal death, but have eternal life. For God's soul, you could put your name in there. That's what it means to make it personal. Because I grew up, and I even memorized this verse as a kid, and I thought he loved the globe. I was a little bit dense. You know, and I just thought, well, he loves, yeah, he loves everybody. I didn't know it was me. I didn't know that Jesus died for me. I didn't get that. He cares. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sin- while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Motivated by God's love for us. He sent Jesus who died for us for us. He died in our place. It's called the substitutionary atonement. Big concept. It means I deserve the death. He stood in there and took it for me. And when he did, he paid for my sin. I deserve that. He took it for me. And all these asses, will you trust me with this? Can you believe this to be true? Can you believe that I died for you personally? Can you believe that the death of Jesus pays the penalty for your sins And if you believe, you will be forgiven and you will be given eternal life. Lost people matter to God and they should matter to his church. Back in 1974, I was uh, just out of college and I was an atheist and I majored in philosophy. I, I, I was pretty smart. I thought I was pretty smart. I thought I was way smarter than I was. And, you know... I didn't like Christians. I didn't like Christianity. And, but I, I got into a relationship with a, some friends of Sue who were believers. And um, I knew that they saw me as a lost person. And I knew that they would want to share the good news of Jesus with me. But what really took me by surprise was as we sat down and visited with them on this particular Friday night... Um, they treated it with me with such honor and dignity. I expected the Christians to kind of put me down for my views. And they listened, and they cared about my opinions. They cared about what I thought. And they interacted with me, and they were patient with me. And they carefully explained the scriptures. And when I came back with another question, they were very patient to try to answer. And I was just, I'd never been treated that way before. And uh, out of that night came a desire by me, I wanted to know the Jesus that they knew. I wasn't interested in being a religious person, but I did want to know the Jesus that they knew. So a fully devoted follower of Christ cares about lost people. Let's go on to number two. A fully devoted follower of Christ gives generously to support Jesus' church. A fully devoted follower of Christ gives generously to support Jesus' church. This is a little bit shorter point than number one. Okay. First of all, generous giving is focused first on Jesus' church. I'm not sure everyone is convinced about that today. I think Christianity is sliding quite a bit on what, what their view of the Bible is or what their view of the church is. 
Um, but let me just see if I can help recenter this. Generous giving, giving is focused first on the church, on Jesus' church. There are a lot of good things to give for that are outside of the church, good ministries, missionaries, things that support justice, cause, justice causes, um, a lot of good things that are, that are out there. I'm going to first start with the, the Old Testament model, and we're, we're going to start with Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. This is uh, about 400 B.C. It's the last book written in the Old Testament, and um, Malachi the prophet says to the people of Israel, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. By the way, the whole tithe, is, it was 10% of their income. It was 10% 10 per, 10 of their produce. It always meant a tenth. It wasn't a twelfth or a twentieth. It was always a tenth. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Where was the storehouse? Well, it was in Jerusalem at the temple. God's people were to bring a tenth of their resources to Jerusalem at the temple. And then God gave a challenge, and he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And so God says, if you test me about this whole thing, um, I, want you to, I want you to see this and I want you to see that I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to provide for you. There's nothing in the Bible about God saying he intends to make you rich. He, he could. That's up to him. But that, this is not the prosperity gospel in any way. And by the way, in Malachi 3, verse 9, or 3, verse 8, the prophet Malachi said, Will a man rob God? And they say, Well, how do, you, how do we rob God? And and, and Malachi said, by keeping your tithes. You rob God by not giving your tithes. And he goes on to explain um, that when they refused to give, they were robbing God. They were using God's money for their own purposes. Now, let me, let me clarify. This is Old Testament. This is under the law, Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, 1400 B.C. So now I'm going to go backwards a thousand years. This is Moses writing. So they were to bring their tithe, according to Malachi, into the storehouse in Jerusalem. That was the central place of worship in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 12, verse 11 and 12. Then to the, pla to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. Now this is a thousand years earlier, and there was no temple in Jerusalem at this time, and they had sort of a, a camping ministry, a, a tent ministry, and the place of worship was the tabernacle. And they carried it around on poles, and they set it up, and they, it was called the Tent of Meeting, and they worshiped God there. And that was the place, and that's where they were to bring and meet God. That's where they bring their tithes. Okay, it was a central place. Um, we're going to jump now to Deuteronomy 14. Thank you. Deuteronomy 14. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. So that's clearly a tithe. Eat a tithe of your grain and new wine. This, is, by the way, is the second tithe. One was to bring their tithe to the storehouse, and this is a tithe to set aside to, for a, 
uh, worship event for one week. They set aside a tenth of their income to have a worship event for one week. So they, they had lodging and they had food and they were to celebrate the goodness of God for a week. And you'd say, well, I'd like to have a vacation. Well, you can. Um, and you can, you can celebrate God for a week if you want to. But they were required to do this, and they had strict uh, rules on how it should be done. Now I want to jump uh, to the next passage. At the end of every three years, Deuteronomy 14, so this is a different tithe. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes that year's produce and store it in your towns, not to the... Um, this is a, after they, there were already two different tithes on every third year, one of those tithes, some scholars believe that this was in place of the second tithe on the third year. Some scholars believe this was an additional tithe on top of the other two tithes. So, for example, you, you tithed everything, and that's, you tithed off 100%, there's 9% left, and you tithed off that, and that made, um, you took 9% off of, or 10% off of 90%, that's 9%. And then you have 81% left, and you take another tithe off of that every third year, and it comes out to about 22%. So every three years they were to do one, and this was for the poor, and it was for the Levites who served at the temple. All I want you to see is there was an intentional plan, and it was to bring it to the place of worship. Um, in the Old Testament, it was the temple or the tabernacle was the first place. And then there was a separate one uh, for the poor. Uh, now I'm going to jump to the New Testament model for the church. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian, Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week. Now Jesus was resurrected on the first day, and so the church began to meet on the first day, which is Sunday. That's where the tradition comes from, meeting on the first day. Each of you, each one of you, each one of you, what does that say? Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That's called proportionate giving. By the way, let me just make it clear. There's no command in the New Testament for you to tithe. There is no command for you to tithe. There is a command for you to give proportionately. So what portion, it's like what piece of the pie do you give? One-tenth is a piece of the pie. And so there is a portion that you should set aside for God. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So guess what? You get to decide that sum of money, saving it up so when I come, no collections have to be made. The model of the early church was they brought their gifts to the place of worship on Sunday, to the church. There were no parachurches in the first century. There were no outside groups. It was the church. And through the church, that would become the place where off of that base, the church would reach out into their community and take care of the needs of the poor, take care of spiritual needs, uh, serve and reach out and make disciples and support missionaries. Um, that's the model. The second thing, 
Generous giving is a hard issue. Generous giving is a hard issue. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, when he's talking about treasure, he's talking about money. And he's talking about giving money to God. Just like they brought their tithes into the storehouse. That was laying up treasure in heaven in the Old Testament. And he's saying, um, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal because it's eternal. It's an eternal investment. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's a hard issue. Is your heart, is it easy to give? Um, to, to, to see, this is God's money. And I, I just want to honor him with it. Or is it tight-fisted? You know, like, gosh, I, gotta, I need this. I, I got to do my stuff with it. And it's an attitude. And I think it's an attitude that can grow and change over time, if you, if you want that, if you're, if you're willing. It's a heart issue. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. It's a heart issue. Each of you should give. Each of you should give what you've decided, not what I decide or what anybody else decides for you. It's what you decide in your heart, what you should give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is looking for cheerful givers. He's not wanting you to pay a tax and hate it. He wants you to just be generous and love to give to him. And he loves cheerful givers. It, you know, that's a, that's a blessing to him. Um, it's, a, it's a decision you make in your heart. It's a careful decision. It's a thoughtful decision. You calculate, you count the costs, you look at your income, you look at your expenses, and you make a plan. And you decide in your heart what you want to do. And there's nobody here setting up and judging what your decision is. But if you have a plan and you work on it and you have a goal, then over time, it's easier to become more generous because I want to increase. And now that I'm getting this debt paid off, I can just increase what I give a little bit more. And it's a decision you make in your heart. Also, generous giving is accompanied by God's favor. Generous giving is accompanied by God's favor. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. The Apostle Paul is using a metaphor from agriculture about sowing and reaping. But what is he talking about? He's talking about money. He's talking about giving. And he says if you give generously, you'll reap generously. If you are stingy, God will be stingy with, with you. That's what he's saying. I'm not making this up. It's right here. And then he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Next slide. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God didn't say he's going to make you rich. So you could have a faster car and a bigger house. He said he could take care of all your needs. He said, 
I'm going to enable you to abound in every good work. God can bless you so you can have a bigger impact for the kingdom so that you can have more to do his work. Whether it's supporting his church, whether it's supporting a justice issue, whether it's supporting a missionary, God is able to make his resources abound to you. This is not about giving to get anything from God. It's about being a Christ follower. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 9 and 10 and 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, another agricultural term, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Farmers needed seed. It was like a cash investment in the future. You spent money to get seed with the hope that it could plant it and produce something in the future. Apostle Paul is using this in reference to giving. That's the whole context. By the way, chapter 8 and chapter 9 are, it's all about giving. It's, it's all about your money. Okay? Um, verse 11, he, or verse 10, he will also supply and increase your store of seed. You'll get more, he says, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness because this is a spiritual connection and you're going to grow spiritually and you're going to become more like Jesus and you're going to become you're going to grow as a fully devoted follower of Christ because of your generosity, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. See, God wants you and me to be generous. So if you're generous now, he probably wants you to be more generous later to grow on every occasion that through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. One of the ways that I learned this is that, like when we were going through seminary, I was kind of a new Christ follower, and we were always needing finances, and we were always praying and asking God for the next $50. And God would just answer one prayer at a time, just enough. There's no big surplus, but always what we needed. And every time we, got to, we prayed and we asked and we, we worked hard, we did everything we could and we just still didn't have enough and God would come through. And guess what we did? Thank you, God. Thanksgiving, that's worship. Because giving produces thanksgiving in the hearts of people. Lastly, uh, generous giving must be pursued. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. But since you excel in everything... Paul writes to Corinthians, in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you excel in this grace in giving. God wants you and me to excel, to keep growing, not to be like satisfied where we are. This is not a guilt trip. This is just, I want you to understand what scriptures say, and you get to respond to it in your time. You get to make your decisions, and it's your money, okay? He wants us to excel. When I think about the church, I dream of a church that will be known in our community for generosity. I think we're growing in generosity. It was really cool this year that for the first year, we, we finished with all bills paid, and we even had a surplus. That was amazing. This, so this sermon is not about asking you for money, okay? Um, but what if we could give more and more to reach out to our community with Christ's love? What if we could support more outreach ministries in our community? What if we could help 
more people who were poor and hopeless, uh, homeless or hopeless. And um, what if we could invest more and more into justice issues as a church? What if we could support missionaries around the world more and more? And we can do this with your generosity, and we can do this if we care about people, if we care about lost people. Let's stand and pray. I thank you, Father, for the scriptures and um, your instructions and your care for us. I thank you that you have loved us and you've not left us alone and you've uh, sent your son Jesus and brought us into a relationship with you through what Jesus has done. And Father, we want to respond back by living in our lives in a way that honors you. You've loved us and you say if, you, if we love Jesus, then we'll keep his commands. Father, help us as we pursue our walk with Christ. Help us as we pursue full devotion. Grow our hearts in compassion for people, for all people. And grow our hearts in generosity for you. In Jesus' name, amen.